0: to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one around you in the pews. Um, So go ahead and, and grab one of those. These last two weeks, we've been talking about John the Baptist and how he compared to Jesus. And even though John the Baptist was a great man, he does not even come close to who Jesus was. And so this morning, we pick up in the drama of John's gospel. And even though there are many people who are repenting of their sins and going to John the Baptist, many more going to Jesus and his disciples to be baptized. But while Jesus is traveling, we get this wonderful story about how he stopped in the land of Samaria because of the story of the good Samaritan. Today, Samaritans have a pretty good reputation, but it was not that way when John wrote this story. After King Solomon, the promised land was split into two nations. The northern nation was called Israel and the southern nation was called Judah. And if you read the book of Kings, you'll find that when the people split, the northern nation of of Israel took two mountains and created two places of worship, two, two new religions, two new temples, because they were afraid their people would be loyal to Judah and would worship in Jerusalem. One of the kings named Samaria the capital of the northern kingdom, the capital of Israel. And eventually this whole northern region came to be known as the land of Samaria. Um, And eventually, as time goes on, we see that Samaria just becomes increasingly wicked, where they start even sacrificing their children on the altars of foreign gods. And their, their kings were even far more wicked than the southern kingdom, so much so that God sends the nation of Assyria and kicks them out of the land. While the nation of Assyria had kicked them out of the land, they resettled pagan peoples in the land of Samaria, and eventually God brought the people back. But when the Israelites returned to the land of Samaria, they intermarried with those who had been relocated to their land. And it was not just that they were married, but they also adopted the pagan practices that the people had brought with them. Samaria was a hot spot for pagan worship, and the Israelites did not respect Samarians. It was just an absolute mess. And the Jews living in the South hated the Sumerians. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson writes, the Jews viewed the Sumerians not only as the children of political rebels, but as racial half-breeds whose religion was tainted by various unacceptable elements. So, So there's extreme tension between these two groups. And in this story, we have Jesus traveling through this land and interacting with a Samaritan woman. So as John is writing his gospel, he doesn't just pick the final destination, Galilee, where Jesus is going. He chooses to include this story. So why does he include this story? We know there's many stories that he leaves out that the other gospels include, and he even writes at the end of the books that if I included all the stories that I could tell you, it would not fill the libraries of all of the world. So he, so he chooses some stories, and he doesn't. So why this story? Well, I th- think... Back to chapter 3, Jesus encountered a religious ruler of the day, a man named Nicodemus, who had all the training, all the money, all the knowledge, and he desperately needed forgiveness. He desperately needed a Savior. And now we meet a woman who has no training, no money, no knowledge, no fame or status, and she desperately needs a Savior. So I think John is trying to paint this picture of who needs Jesus by showing us these two extremes, the absolute person who probably didn't need Jesus and the woman who obviously needs Jesus. This is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. In fact, the first time that I ever preached, I chose this passage and I pray that 13 years later, this sermon will be a bit better than back then. But I'm excited to dive in and uh, let's pray and we'll, we'll do just that. If you'll pray with me. Holy Spirit. Pour out your wisdom and your understanding upon us this morning. Teach us today so that we can have a spring of living water that wells up inside of our souls and leads us into everlasting life. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to do a quick survey. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, God doesn't care about your happiness, he cares about your holiness? Just real quick, raise your hand if you've heard that at some point or another. Just a couple people. I heard that many times growing up. And I've even heard people that I deeply respect, and I know what they mean when they say that, is, you know, We live in a culture that worships ourselves and worships our own desire, and it doesn't matter who it's affecting. As long as you're happy, that's the, the biggest thing in life. You know, whatever makes you happy, live your truth. That's the end of the story. So I'm not upset with people who use that phrase. God doesn't care about your happiness. He cares about your holiness. But I would like to change it just a little bit. God doesn't care about your worldly happiness, but he is obsessed with your holy happiness. Because trying to be satisfied by the things of the world is like trying to catch smoke with your bare hands. Nothing on earth is ever going to satisfy the desires of your heart. Just ask King Solomon. He had absolutely everything. He had all the wisdom in the world in his day. Silver was as common as bricks because gold was so common. He had all the food, all the wine, all the women, the mansions, the entertainment he could ever ask for. And you know what his conclusion was? It's all vanity. None of it satisfies. But there is a kind of happiness that is good and holy, and it does satisfy. The Puritans have a reputation for being strict, joyless thugs, and some of that is deserved. But... When they sat down to write a teaching for their children, a a series of questions and answers for how to instruct the next generation in following the Lord, they started with this question. This is the first question in their teaching. What is the chief end of man? Answer, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's where they started. You were created to give glory to God and to be happy in God. Isn't that so the opposite of what we've taught, been taught or what we've come to understand in our lives? Is that if I'm going to follow the Lord, then that means I need to get rid of all my happiness and give up on the really good life out there. And following the Lord just means being the stoic cynic that just hates life and is miserable all the time. But that's not what the Puritans believe. And I don't believe that that is what the Bible teaches. When you read the Psalms, how many times does the psalmist write about delighting in the law of God and delighting in God himself? Jesus, when he came, he said, I come that they would have life and have it in abundance. Jesus did not come to be a cosmic killjoy. He came so that you would have life and joy and peace. And and even during our offering, we talked about how God loves a cheerful giver. And Think about that for, for a second. God doesn't love when someone gives just because they're obligated to. He loves it when someone gives cheerfully now, because, because that's, that's they're giving it to the Lord. They're giving to his mission. So, so listen to this, church. If you're giving to this church, out, not out of the joy of your heart, but out of obligation, I'd ask you, do not give because we do not need your money. All right. I, I ask, do not give another dime to this church until you go home and pray in your heart that God would give you a joy and so that when you're giving your, that money, it's not like, oh no, like this, I gotta do this because I'm supposed to. It's yes, I get to participate in the mission and joy of God and he has blessed me so much so I'm happy to return some of it. That should be the attitude. But you know what that means too? Is that God is not after your begrudging submission. He's after your joy. If you're following him and you're not following him joyfully, then you're sinning, which is a hard truth, but it's a good truth that God cares about our joy. So here's, here's my challenge this morning. Here's, here's what I think I'm after. This, let me ask you this, church. Where are you trying to find satisfaction? Are you looking to food or drink to satisfy your longings? Are you looking for the security that money offers or the warmth that love and relationships offered? Are you desperately trying to make a name for yourself and you think, only if I got to this point in my career, then I'd finally be satisfied. Let me tell you, you won't. It won't make you happy. It hasn't for anyone who has come before you. You might be happy for a while, but it will not last. Are you looking for lasting happiness within your family and with those you love? And let me, let me fill you in on a secret Your family is full of sinners, and you're one of them. Family will never satisfy the deepest desires of your heart. The people that you love were not designed to do that, and they can never live up to that expectation. And when we treat our family members and try to to find satisfaction and joy from them as our ultimate source of joy, we're putting a burden on their shoulders that they cannot bear. And that's why we get resentful towards them. They're not making me happy the way they're supposed to but they weren't meant to make you happy the way that you were designed to be. And that maybe you're even looking to religion to find meaning and satisfaction. Let me tell you, being Baptist will not satisfy the deepest desires of your heart. Some of you are already laughing because you know, amen, that's right. I know. This church is beautiful and wonderful, but it's full of sinners. And I'm the chief of it. Like I w- if, if you persist in this church for much longer Not only will other people around you sin against you and hurt you, but I will sin against you and hurt you because I'm a failure. Mm -hmm. The church is not meant to be this perfect social group. And if you try to find your meaning within the walls of the church, you're only going to be empty. The point is, is that we come together to worship the one who can satisfy our hearts. And that's where we find unity. That's where we find satisfaction. That's what we're here for. All religions, even true Christian religion is meaningless If you don't find your joy in the living water of Jesus. So what I want to do this morning is to look at the only one who can satisfy our hearts. My prayer this morning is that we would be completely satisfied in Jesus. Because in John 4, in verses 1 through 14, we're going to see three reasons why the Father sent the Son into the world. And when we understand those reasons, that's how we find rest for our restless souls. And I understand some of you are confused, and you're already looking at the bulletin, you're looking up here, and you're saying, wait, you said three reasons, there's five reasons. I was a fool to think that I could preach this whole passage of the 30 verses, or the 26 verses in one sermon. And I was writing last night, and going on and on, and I'm like, this is the second sermon. I'm going to be up here for an hour. So we've got to split it into two. We're going to cover the first three reasons Jesus came today, and next week we'll look at the last two reasons. Because this is a rich passage. It's actually... The longest conversation that Jesus has with anyone in the Gospels, just really, which blew my mind, and I went back and checked several other conversations, the longest conversation Jesus has in the Gospel, and it's full of deep and wonderful truth. So to make sure that we get out of here by noon, we're only going to look at the first three reasons in the first 14 verses, and look at why Jesus was sent into the world. But let's start with the first three reasons. Firstly, we're going to see that Jesus came to die on a cross in verses 1 through 3. Jesus came to die on a cross. Secondly, we're going to see that Jesus came to meet sinners where they were at in verses 4 through 9. Jesus came to meet sinners where they were at. And finally, we're going to see that Jesus came to give abundant life in verses 10 through 14. Jesus came to give abundant life. So let's dive in with the first reason why the Father sent the Son. Jesus came to die on a cross. Look with me, if you will, to verses 1 through 3. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Stop right there. Jesus has already made a name for himself by kicking the money changers out of the temple, by performing miracles in Jerusalem, and now he's drawing more attention to himself as he's gaining more of a name than John the Baptist. In my mind, this should have been the moment where Jesus puts the pedal to the metal and amplifies his ministry. He's gaining followers. It's time for him to set up the kingdom of God on earth. It's time for him to begin his movement. But Jesus does not do any of that. And as soon as it becomes clear that the Pharisees are taking notice, he leaves Judea and heads north for Galilee. Why would he do that? Because he knows that if he stays, the Pharisees will kill him. The Pharisees were probably putting two and two together. They were realizing that if John the Baptist was not the Messiah, maybe this Jesus might be. But Jesus is not acting like the Messiah they expected or they wanted. And these leaders were more concerned with their plans than they were with God's plans. They were on their side and not God's side. They were concerned about their status and their authority and their rights within the nation. And if Jesus is going to challenge that, then they're going to do whatever it takes to get rid of him. So Jesus leaves because his hour had not come yet. Do you remember what I mean? But when I say his hour, is that all the way back in John 2, when we talked about the wedding at Cana, is that Jesus' mother comes up to him and says, hey, there's no wine. You want to do something, Jesus? And he says, my hour is not yet here. This is a key phrase to understanding this entire gospel is the hour of Jesus. He uses this phrase 22 times in this book. It's everywhere and even comes twice later in this chapter in verse 23. And in verse 23, he says, the hour is coming and is now here. So it's already here, but it's not quite here in verse 23. And if you jump to the last supper of Jesus uh, and right before his crucifixion, the night before Jesus says, my hour is here. So what is his hour? It's the hour of the cross. Because Jesus came to die on the cross at the right time. And he's not leaving out of fear. He could take the Pharisees if he wanted to. But he's leaving because everything is going according to plan. This is the hour that all human history was waiting for. The whole world is cursed because of the sin of mankind. And finally, someone has come to reverse the curse. This is the climax of all human history. It's why Jesus came. And if you don't understand that, then you will miss the entire point of the gospel of John. And you also miss the point of Christianity. His greatest priority is to die for the sin of the world. And everything else is going to come second to that mission. So he heads north so that he may die at the right time and in the right place. But he doesn't head straight for Galilee. He makes a stop in Samaria because while Jesus came to die on a cross, he also came to meet sinners where they were. Look with me to verses 4 through 6. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour to stop there. Jesus is traveling through Samaria and he stops at an important landmark. Sychar was the place where God first appeared to Abraham. And it's important to know in this story that Jacob and his family lived in Sychar right before they went into Egypt. And apparently during that time, it's not recorded in the Bible, but apparently he had built a well there. That event was about 2,000 years before Jesus's conversation with this woman. This was a great well. If you go to Sychar today, that well still stands 4,000 years after it was built. It's, it's a significant, it's a great well. So Jesus arrives at this religiously significant and historical landmark at the sixth hour. That would have been around noon. You see, at this time, they count the number of hours, not from midnight because that wasn't a concept, but they count the number of hours from the time the sun rises. So six hours from sunrise, about the hottest part of the day, around noon. And that re- the reason that John notes this, it's important because it's the hottest part of the day. They're walking through the desert, through the Middle East, and it would have been natural for them to stop and grab some water. But of course, there's nothing natural about this journey. Look at how Jesus is described in verse 6. It says that he is wearied as he was from his journey. Journey. It says he was wearied. It should be strange to us because so far in the book of John, John, the gospel writer, has been absolutely adamant that Jesus is not just a great prophet or a great man, but he is God from all of eternity past, that he created the heavens and the earth. So how is it possible, if Jesus is truly God, that he's wearied? Because while Jesus is truly God, he is also truly man. Hebrews tells us that Christ was made human and was like us in every way except without sin. Here, John is telling us that though Jesus is true God of true God from all of eternity, he experienced all the limitations and weaknesses that humans experience. The one who made Mercury and Venus became a fetus. Here we see the creator of water become thirsty. And at the cross, we will see the author of life die. Why on earth would Jesus endure The pains of humanity. Why would he humiliate himself and choose to go through these difficulties? Because he came to meet sinners where they were. Our sin has created a massive chasm between us and God that we can never overcome. It is too wide, too deep that mankind could never cross that chasm. This chasm is so wide and deep, it's impossible for us to cross over it. The only hope for us is if God somehow crosses that chasm for us to bring us back to him. And that's exactly what Jesus did when he took on flesh and went to the cross, was to bridge that gap. Jesus broke the space-time continuum to meet sinners where they were. But then he even takes one step closer Look with me at verses seven through nine. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, asked for, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. In many ways, it would have been the most natural thing in the world for him to ask for some water. He's traveling, he's thirsty, he doesn't have anything to draw water with. So as an American, I read this and say, of course he had asked for a drink. But this isn't San Antonio, this is Samaria. So how does this woman respond? She is absolutely astonished. She's shocked. Many of the Jews of the day would not have been willing to eat with a Samaritan. That's why if you look at the end of verse 9, There's that phrase, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It can literally be translated, for Jews do not use dishes Samaritans have used. She's talking about her bucket. Why would you drink from my bucket? We don't share those common things. And this gets even more controversial because she is a she. She's a woman. At the time of Jesus, there was a common saying throughout the region uh, about Samaritans, and this was the saying, all daughters of Samaritans are unclean from the cradle. So there's this idea that that no matter what they do, no matter what process, no matter what cleansing they do, they are always unclean. So if you touch a Samaritan, you're unclean too. There's this disdain for the Samaritan people. To the Jews, she's a pagan. She's a half-breed. She is unclean. Why would Jesus want to use her bucket to drink? It's hard to even understand how shocking this would have been Uh, to the people, but I want you to imagine a couple scenarios. Imagine someone walking up to a person who they know is COVID COVID positive and saying, let me drink from your water bottle. Now also imagine back in the 1950s when we had white and colored drinking fountains and that during that time, imagine a white man going up to a black woman asking her for a drink from her water bottle. And now combine these two scenarios, and that's what you have here. That's the image. That's the shock that this is supposed to invoke. That's the level of scandal. Racial, social, religious tensions are high in this conversation, and the woman cannot believe what she is hearing. Why would Jesus do this? Why would he do something so offensive and so countercultural Because he has set his heart on this woman. And Jesus is willing to break down every barrier so that heaven can have her. This woman, who is not searching for a savior, is face to face with her maker. And Jesus wants her with his whole heart. His hour is coming and when he goes to the cross, he's going to die for the world. Even this Samaritan woman. And we still don't get how revolutionary that idea is. The Israelites would have this celebration once a year called the Day of Atonement, where an animal was sacrificed for the sins of the nation. And that was a big deal, is we have one animal for the sins of all of us. But when Jesus shows up, John the Baptist points to him and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not Israel. The world. And there may have been some readers that are thinking, okay, maybe John means those Jews who are scattered throughout the nations. Maybe he means good people who are scattered throughout the worlds, but the Samaritans, there's no way Jesus is going to be the Lamb of God for them. There's no way Jesus is going to die for them. But here we have Jesus encountering the most unlikely convert he could ever meet. And he meets her where she's at because he wants to pour out his grace upon her. So let me ask you, who are the Samaritans in your life? Who are the people that you would never associate with? Who are those that, have such, that are such bad sinners in your eyes that it would seem like the grace of God will never reach them? What is the group that you avoid at all costs because they're all the same? And let me say, these are hard questions, not just because they're hard to hear, but because they're hard for us to answer. They're hard questions because it, it causes us and forces us to examine our own hearts and examine our motives and our, our thoughts. And I don't want to get too much into the political realm, but everyone's calling each other racist. And, and I think we should ignore all of that noise and really just look into our hearts and say, who do I treat differently? Because they're from a different group, whether they're young or old or black or white or, or Muslim or Jewish. I mean, we really have to examine these kind of attitudes of our own hearts. And these are hard conversations. But right here we see a God who dies for all, who takes away the sin of the world. If Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and he is, we have an obligation to love and to serve and to share our faith with all kinds of people and all kinds of sinners. And if we're faithful to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of this gospel, that probably means that people will start coming to church who are not like us, and it's our responsibility to love them regardless like Jesus loved this woman. It's our job to love them even as Jesus has loved us. Because there, there is application in this passage for us to say, look at what Jesus did, and He crossed the lines and he crossed the barriers, and look at how He loved this woman." And this isn't a great example for evangelism. But in this story, you are not Jesus. You are primarily the woman. Because most of us are not of Jewish heritage. Most of us are dirty Gentiles. And when you were in a state of utter sin and rebellion, that's when Christ loved you. And that's when he died for you. He didn't love you when you had your act cleaned up, whenever you were perfect, when you were ready to, I mean, he came to you. He saved you. He poured out his grace upon you because you are the woman at the well. And and never forget, the grace that God has shown you in this situation, because he has torn down the barriers of heaven and all of human existence to send Jesus in the flesh. And then Jesus even crosses more barriers than that. And I hope that we follow the example of Jesus and meet people where we're at. But more importantly than that, realize the length that Jesus came to meet us. And if you're not a believer in this room, not only did he take on flesh and live the perfect life that you couldn't and die the death that you deserved, but he has even led you to this church this Sunday morning to hear these words, come as you are. Jesus is ready to meet you where you are. It's not by good works or church attendance or baptism or communion. It's only through Faith in what Jesus has done on the cross to die for all. Yes. Amen. It's only through faith in Jesus that we can have eternal life. And he is ready to meet you where you are. Amen, church? Amen. That's where he's met all of us. And he's ready to meet any who will come to him. And I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Because not only did Jesus come to meet sinners where they are, he came to give abundant life. Look with me at verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Stop right there. Jesus does not address any of the cultural issues at play. He just tells her that she uh, that uh, he just tells her that she knew who he was, that if she knew who he was and what he had to give her, she would not care less about the social dynamics at play. He uses the phrase, the gift of God. But what is the gift of God? Well, some of you can probably guess. It's not clear to the woman, but to those of us who have been reading so far, we know what God gave to the world. For God so loved the world that he gave what? His only son. Jesus is the gift of God. But it's interesting. Instead of telling her that, he uses this picture of living water. It's interesting. Back in verse seven, Jesus is the one asking for water. But now he's turning it around and telling her, you should be asking me for water. But why does he say living water? Why not just water? Well, you remember we read Jeremiah 2 earlier and it says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Jesus borrows this picture from Jeremiah to communicate that this woman was not satisfied in God. She was looking for peace and satisfaction in anything and everything under the sun. And none of it provided the peace that her soul was looking for. Because nothing in this world would satisfy our souls except for the one who has made our souls. And Jesus came to give the abundant life that comes from our maker. But sadly, in this conversation at this point, the woman doesn't get the message. Look with me to verses 11 through 12. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. We've seen this so many times in the book of John already, where Jesus is speaking about heavenly things, and his hearers are only concerned with the earthly. Just like when Jesus told Nicodemus, You must be born again. And what was Nicodemus' response? How can a man re enter his mother's womb a second time? And John loves these stories, and they're all throughout his gospel. And here we have another one. And this woman is so focused on her physical needs that she has no awareness of her heavenly needs. In fact, she may be offended because Jesus is implying that something is wrong with the water that her forefather, Jacob, had provided for her. So she asks, Are you greater than Jacob? Yes, he is. And he could have said that. But look at what he says in verses 13 through 14. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Instead of simply saying, yes, I am greater than Jacob, he compares the kind of water that he offers to the kind of water in the well besides them. Jacob's well is pretty impressive. 2,000 years standing strong and giving out water for this little community. But Jesus says here, his water will never leave you thirsty again. This water not only satisfies your thirst, but digs a well inside of you. It's not a well that's close by that you have to go. It's inside of you that continually produces water. This water not only satisfies your thirst, but is within you and the result is that you will never thirst again because his water is better. So Jesus is saying he is greater than Jacob without saying he's greater than Jacob. But what is he actually talking about? Why does he say a well of water inside of you? Well, I think he gives us a clue at the end of verse 14. Jesus says, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to what? Eternal life. Once again, we, where have we heard this phrase eternal life before? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son and whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. So if what, uh, what is this water that it gives eternal life? It's Jesus himself. That's what John's trying to tell us. The water and Christ are the same. He's speaking of himself. He is that living water that will swell up inside of your soul and produce an eternal, abundant life this is where we have to stop in our text, and I'm excited to pick up next week. But my prayer this morning is that we would be completely satisfied in Jesus because in John 4, 1-14, we saw three reasons why the Father sent Jesus into the world. We saw that Jesus came to die on a cross to meet sinners where they were and to give abundant life. Let me ask you, church, where are you trying to find satisfaction? Are you trying to find satisfaction in food or drink, love or lust, fame, or family? Do you realize nothing on earth is ever going to satisfy the desires of your heart? Trying to be satisfied with earthly things is trying to dig your way out of a hole. You'll never get out. Maybe even you can cover it up for a while and try to find satisfaction in religion that looks really nice and feels really good for a while, but if you're only doing it because you feel obligated and it's not that's not something that God's pleased with, and it also doesn't satisfy God does not care about your worldly happiness, but he is absolutely obsessed with your holy happiness. He wants you to worship him, not just with your hands, not just with your head, but also with your whole heart. So how do we get this living water? How do we embrace Jesus and finally find rest for our restless souls? Well, I have two pastoral charges for you. Two ways we can find rest and peace and satisfaction that will never leave us thirsty again first pastoral charge. Come as you are and Jesus will meet you there. Come as you are and Jesus will meet you there. The reason you can't find lasting happiness is because you were never made to be satisfied with earthly things. But your biggest problem is not that you're unhappy. This is only the red flag. It's only the warning sign. The biggest problem we have is that you and I are idolaters. You and I have loved other things more than God, and that is worshiping that thing. You may not bow down to a golden calf, but when you run to the world to find satisfaction, that's only seeking to find happiness in a lesser God. We're constantly worshiping lesser gods and running from the one who can actually satisfy us. And the bad news is that God even tells us in Revelation 21 that all idolaters will have their part in the lake of fire. It's a serious offense because it's God's first commandment. You shall not worship any other God besides the Lord. And and friends, we have all fallen short. I have fallen short. But the good news is that Jesus came to the earth, took on flesh, and never worshiped anything besides the true God of the universe. He lived the perfect life that we could not and died the death that idolaters like you and I deserve. He bled on the cross for sinners, but then he rose from the grave and defeated death. And now if you'll humble yourself and turn from seeking satisfaction in other lesser gods, and you turn to what Jesus did on the cross, he will give you everlasting life. And that life is not begrudging submission, but an eternal joy that will never die out. You don't have to clean up your life first. You don't have to do any religious rituals. Jesus took on flesh and gave up the glories of heaven and has even brought you here today to meet you where you are. So come to him and trust in his sacrifice today. Second pastoral charge. Christian, remember what Jesus has done for you. Remember, you were that woman at the well. You were that dirty, half-breed, unclean, Gentile, and pagan. That's what we are. But God has broken down all barriers to come to meet us and to love us. And remember, so 2 Peter 1.9 says that Christians grow cold when they have forgotten that they have been cleansed from their old sins. It's not as if we, we get saved and we believe in Jesus and we graduate into a greater realm of Christian life where we leave Jesus and the cross behind. No, the cross is the entire life. We never outgrow our need for the gospel and our need for grace every single day. We don't start with Jesus and then graduate to something deeper. He is the well inside of our souls that produces streams of living water. And if we forget what he has done and what he's doing, you'll quickly lose your joy. And that's a miserable Christian life, my friends. I still am that woman. Yeah. It yeah. And I'm thankful you're here, Frankie. Yeah. yeah. And I'm still that woman, too. We're all, I mean, we all seeking to find satisfaction in the things of the world and and in sex and in drink and in everything and anything under the sun. But Jesus has met us where he is and he's standing even today to meet us where we are. So remember what he has done for you. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Fork and Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horkenbaptist.com.